This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for April 28th, 2017. Every Monday, I'm bringing you brand new content, but for the next while, on Wednesdays and Fridays, I'm including previous interviews in this feed, like this one with the journalist, academic and author Claire Berlinski, about the history of Margaret Thatcher's Prime Ministership of the UK. Listen and enjoy. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. On a Skype line now, I have Claire Berlinski. Uh, She's a journalist and author originally from California. She studied modern history and got a doctorate in international relations at Balliol College, Oxford. She has lived and worked as a journalist in Southeast Asia, in Paris and in Turkey. And she's a senior fellow for Turkey at the American Foreign Policy Council and a Manhattan Institute scholar. And she's written several books. Uh, Hello, Claire. I want to talk um, with you about um, an insurgent politician, a right-wing nationalist uh, that many people on the right were very uncomfortable with, someone who upended established power structures in a way that liberals and left-wing commentators maybe even envied, a politician who kept winning elections against expectations, not least because of being loved by grassroots supporters more than by the establishment, and uh, someone who had an extraordinary personality, not typical of politicians. But I'm not talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about Margaret Thatcher, and I know you've written a book on her. Why Why do you think Margaret Thatcher is a special politician or was a special politician? I'll just interject here that when Sarah Palin was on the ticket for vice president, people kept asking me whether I saw any commonality between Sarah Palin and Margaret Thatcher. And I would say, absolutely not. Margaret Thatcher knew what she was talking about. She was prepared. She had been in government in in the shadow cabinet for years and years. There is no subject for which she was unprepared. She was the master of her brief and had nothing whatsoever in common with Palin. And I would stress that even more when, when we make any comparison between her and Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, so what, what made her what what made her special or different to other, other politicians? I think there's really there are really a few reasons, but I think first thing is put her in context. When she came to power in 1979, socialism and communism and doctrinal Marxism were still taken extremely seriously, and not only in the Eastern Bloc but much of the West. And uh, the Soviet Union still presided over a vast, miserable, subjugated empire, and it had been an awful day, uh, an awful decade for for freedom. Um, Southeast Asia communist regimes had seized Cambodia and Laos, South Vietnam. Um, Spain and Portugal were lurching leftward. And um, Britain still, Britain's Labour Party still had Clause 4 in its constitution. It might come back at this point, but which is an extraordinary thing to think of in itself. But Briefly, what is Clause 4? Clause 4 is the was a section of its constitution that said secure for the workers by hand or by brain the full fruits of their industry and the most equitable distribution thereof that may be possible on the basis of the common ownership of the means of production, distribution, exchange, and the best obtainable system of popular administration and control for each industry or service. Common ownership of the means of production. Now that's really that, that's not that, a, that's a bureaucrat's way of saying uh, saying nationalize all industries. That's right. It, it, it's it's a full on 
Soviet-style communist platform. And that's right there. And, there, and it was, you know, this is something that even – I think that I've, I've seen a couple of people talking about bringing it back under Corbyn, but it's so far from imaginable now that this could be part of a mainstream platform. Um, and Thatcher was – she played a very significant role in what I would call the great disenchantment with communism, uh, a worldwide realization that, that um, a market economy – is inseparable from liberty and prosperity. This was really not something that was settled until well, until the Soviet Union fell, and she was important in playing a role in that and in making the intellectual case for free markets, for uh, what you could basically call the basic Western liberty package. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how was she different to other conservative politicians at the time? What did she have that other people didn't? She had an incredible force of will, for one thing, but she also had a vision. She also she was widely per- perceived. To have been the to be the only politician who saw the problem as Britain was widely believed to be interminable in, in terminal decline, and she reversed this decline. Um, and she was she was the only politician who was willing to say it can be reversed and it will be reversed, whereas her contemporaries were focused on gradually managing the decline, which is which is actually you know, a situation where. There are some parallels with contemporary United States where everyone sees that this is a power in decline and various various politicians are talking about how best to manage a shrinking a shrinking role in the world. But Britain Britain was um wasn't just talking about Britain had long since lost the empire, but there was a sense that now Britain was losing even the most basic economic competitiveness that was doing worse than all of its peers in Europe. And um, she was really I think single handedly responsible for reversing that. For, for yanking Britain off of a trajectory that would be that, w- that would have left it a state of absolute poverty had it continued that way, um, and she was also give me a, give me a sense give me a sense of of how she did that how was she different what was what were the unique characteristics there was her well she was she was very lucky for one thing I mean she was she was elected and reelected in, uh, the basis of in part of luck of having being able to time the elections and the upswing of the the economy, but she was absolutely dogged in um, in in her refusal to give in to obstacles that other other people would have said are too great. For example, there's the Falklands War, but also the the um, the real moment, the real test was during the miners' strike. Mm-hmm. Um, I should say for people who are not familiar with it, the coal mining was hugely important in Britain at the time. Uh, Arthur Scargill, the leader of the uh, miners' union, led that led those workers in a year-long strike that nearly paralyzed the country. Uh, rail unions um, struck in sympathy with them uh, and refused to carry imported coal. This meant uh, great difficulties for power supply and for industry. This could have made the government fall. It could have, and it um, very nearly did. It was She had a tremendous force of will, and she was determined that she was going to win that conflict because she saw it as absolutely central to the question of who has sovereignty in Britain, who is the government? Because Scargill's view, Scargill's view was that uh, he should, the trade unions should. He was an all-out Stalinist, and um, his position is often portrayed in in movies and the media as being very heroic. But he wasn't. He wasn't heroic. His point was that these coal mines should experience what he said was loss without limit. There should be. They should essentially be maintained, even though they weren't profitable, as a form of welfare in order to keep these miners employed in the industry which they had, in which their parents and grandparents had been employed. And this is insanity. Mm-hmm. It's insanity. I mean, if you're going to have a welfare scheme like this, at least let it be something humane, not going down a, gold, down a coal mine, which is 
dirty, dangerous. It, it's 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 one of the worst jobs in the world. And if it's not making money, why on earth would you have people do it? It makes no sense at all. But um, his his belief, Scargo's belief, was that these men were entitled to continue to mine coal because that was part of their community and that was what they wanted to do, even though the, the mines in question, which were being shut down, were no longer profitable. And if, if physically, if you think about a coal mine, you do get to the end of where of the place where it's possible economically to extract the coal. You have to keep digging deeper and deeper, and it's technologically more difficult and more dangerous. The mines were exhausted, and there was uh, competing coal coming on stream from Australia, from China. It made no sense to keep these mines open. Sure, sure. just to interject there, it made no sense to keep some of those mines open, but there was also a vindictive element to uh, Thatcher running the miner strike, particularly because the miners' uh, unions had been um, key to how the Conservative government, that she was a minor cabinet minister in, yeah, had, had lost power previously. And they were, as well as um, perhaps having uh, uh, economic reasons, they also had vindictive reasons to uh, go after the coal miners, didn't they? Certainly, absolutely. That certainly, she did not want to be compared unfavorably with Heath. You remember the famous U-turn. Mm-hmm. Uh, your your, your uh, listeners might not know about this. G- but, give us the uh, line. It's a great line. <laughs> you turn if you want to. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. <laughs> The ladies not for turning. <laughs> the ladies not for turning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was in reference to her predecessors backing down uh, under similar kinds of kinds of pressure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think vindictive isn't quite the word I would use, but I would say symbolic. They certainly felt it was important symbolically to show that the National Union of Mine, Mine Workers was not was not the sovereign state in Britain. Uh, and it was, it was a question of, of who runs Britain. That was the campaign slogan, in fact. He'd run on it, his predecessor had run on it, and uh, it turned out that he didn't. It turned out that he did not run Britain, and she felt it was essential to establish that the, the elected government ran Britain. Now, I don't think that she felt a vindictiveness toward all the miners. Uh, I think you know there, there, was, there was the miners who wanted to work, the ones in Nottinghamshire, for example, were hardly... She, she wanted them to be able to, to work in the productive coal mines, and she was absolutely willing to support that. Um, but she wasn't willing to continue subsidizing mines that were no longer profitable. And uh, it took an enormous amount of willpower. It took an ability to be able to stand up to unrelenting criticism. Um, the images of, the, of these miners, everyone's heart is naturally on the side of the working man, the coal miner, and, and uh, the image of them losing their jobs on strike Descending into violent conflict with the police, which is completely, completely abnormal. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was enormous for people who who aren't familiar with it. It was an enormously um, disruptive time in Do you Britain. It? The, um, uh, not quite, but I've I've read about it. Um, the uh, miners uh, in their thousands and sometimes tens of thousands uh, were massing to try and keep the mines closed, hundreds and sometimes thousands of police uh, engaged in pitched battles with them. It was hugely divisive in Britain. Uh, people, um, I've, I've, I've heard interviews uh, on, I think, the 30th anniversary of the, uh, of the strike where 
people said, uh, my brother broke the strike. I haven't talked to him since. Yeah, I interviewed people who in, in New Yorkshire who had, who had very vivid memories of it still, including former miners. And even though almost everyone I said said in retrospect, you know, she was right. Like she was right about it economically, but they they still felt this visceral hatred of her uh, because she destroyed their communities. And do you, know, do you think Claire? Do you think Claire? That's because you said that she was able to stand up to pressure. Do you think maybe she fed on the pressure? You mean do I think she had a personality such that she enjoyed opprobrium? Yes, um, or perhaps not opprobrium, but that she performed best when she was against a very clear adversary, whereas when she was dealing with um, more subtle pressures, more subtle pressures she, uh, or perhaps not more subtle pressures, but just more subtle issues, she wasn't as as uh, as nuanced. Yeah, that's possible. I hate to try to say, when you say she fed on conflict, it suggests that I have an insight into her emotional state that I don't really have. I think she did perform extremely well under pressure. Um, she performed extremely well under the pressure of the Falklands War. She made a de- she made decisions that probably no one around her would have made because, as I've been told, anyone who had any military experience at all would have said this is too much of a risk to take. Mm-hmm. Um, and she got she made the correct decisions in the sense that Britain was able to win against overwhelming odds. Um, and I think it was a legitimately fought war. Um, but she was also very lucky. I mean, we all know that it's possible to make this kind of decision and for it to go disastrously, disastrously wrong. Um, Napoleon has a line about this, that uh, um, one of the qualifications he needs for his generals is that they're lucky. She was lucky as well yes. as everything else, but she it was wasn't exclusively lucky. luck. She was extremely lucky, but it wasn't just luck. That's right. Um, and you're right that the moments that we remember her best for are moments of big confrontation, especially with the European Union. Uh, we want our money back. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. Yes. There are two things, two very negative legacies that she left. And one of them is playing out in Britain at the moment where there is, and I hope to do another podcast about it, what's called the Brexit referendum. That's to say uh, Britain is voting on a referendum to entirely leave the EU. Um, She stoked up that that very irrational anti-EU feeling, didn't she? Well, hold on, hold on. Because remember, first she was... She was for the EU. She campaigned to stay in in the 1975 referendum. Remember that? Yes. So I I believe he campaigning to stay in now because her objection was her what she didn't want was the single currency. Mm-hmm. She didn't want the single currency, and she she wanted um, to put a break on the amount of ridiculous legislation that was coming out of Brussels that was not properly that should not properly have anything to do with with decisions that sovereign states make. Mm-hmm. Um, I do not think that if she were alive now, she would she would counsel this as a good moment for a Brexit, given given the state of the world economy, given the effect it would have on the British economy, given given geopolitics. I strongly suspect that she would she would not be on the exit side. I, I think you're probably correct in a technical sense there. But it is true that she stoked up the feeling uh, an anti-European feeling. Yeah. Uh, one of her um, mouthpiece newspapers, uh, The Sun, uh, ran a famous headline, uh, which was "Up Yours, Dolores." Dolores being the the uh, the head of the European Commission at the time, and she enjoyed and thrived on um, what was very little short of xenophobic attitudes yeah. towards continental Europe. She was a populist politician. That was definitely part of her appeal, and I think it's a fair word to to describe her. Political scientist friend of mine said, "No, she's not a populist. You can't describe her as a." But I think that was certainly part part populist basic gut feeling connection with the voters was very important. And mm-hmm. I do think you're right that some of the some of the anti EU sentiment can be tied to that. Um, 
But, but that tradition has continued, and you can say it festered. It has turned even more poisonous than she would have, have accepted. Yes. But this very, very irrational uh, xenophobic feeling that uh, is now driving a lot of the uh, the pro Brexit uh, feeling had its uh, had its origins with her, isn't that true? Well, no, I think they probably had their origins in much in much. Well, she like, she legitimized Italian. it. In that case. You know, there's there's a, there's a long tradition of feeling feeling anxiety about the state of the continent, and not wanting to be part of it in Britain. Mm-hmm. But she she legitimized it. Yeah, I, she did legitimize. It. I think you're right. I think you're right, and I think that. Um, in one sense, she was right to. I mean, I'm sure that you agree that it was very, very good thing that Britain didn't get involved in the euro. Uh, um, it, it, I, I'm not enough of an economist to make a pronouncement on that. Well, but I'll, the, I'll take your word for it. The euro has been. A, a, there's no one who thinks the euro was a good idea. Now everyone says it was an absolute disaster. This has caused. This has caused the immiseration of the immiseration of Southern Europe. It's caused a rupture in feelings of fraternity among European nations did exactly the opposite of what it was intended to do. And she rightly spotted that as a disastrous trap, as as something that would that would really remove a key instrument of sovereignty that governments must have to be able to set their own monetary policy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think in that sense, she, she called that one right. But you're right in doing so. She probably did. She probably had some effect. I don't know how much we can measure it, but she had some effect that is is residual to this day of making people who probably weren't inclined towards sympathy to the European project to begin with even less inclined. Uh, but it should be noted that that antedated her. There was a referendum in '75, and she was on the opposite side of it. So it's not as mm-hmm. if she she her she was the original Eurosceptic. She was just a Eurosceptic in her last years in power, which was also her downfall. Mm-hmm. Um, one other thing uh, that perhaps you can be criticised for the what's called the Troubles in Northern Ireland, the uh, violent conflict between Irish nationalists yeah. in Northern Ireland, uh, which is uh, controlled and part of the UK and, and ruled uh, from London. Um, that violent conflict lasted the entirety of her years in power. She was the outstanding leader of Britain during that time, and that conflict essentially could not be resolved until she left office. There's no question that there was a level of discrimination, including state-sponsored discrimination, against Catholic nationalists in Northern Ireland. She refused to see any of the uh, protests or uh, resistance to that discrimination as anything other than a crime wave. Wasn't that a tragedy? Well, of course, the conflict was a tragedy. Uh, I don't know whether it could have been solved before it was, because there are, there are many other internal dynamics of the conflict that kept it from being resolved. And I don't know how resolved it is, actually. I mean, it's something that I, I worry about for the future. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you're looking to understand her rigidity on the subject of the IRA, you, you, you of course know that she had a very personal reason. Sure, yes. A, a close friend of hers was murdered by the IRA, the Irish yeah, Republican Army. They tried Army, to kill the, her, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they tried to kill, they very nearly uh, killed her, and in a very chilling statement, um, uh, the IRA, this uh, Irish nationalist uh, terrorist uh, organization, uh, said when they had narrowly failed to kill her, said, uh, you were lucky, but you must be lucky every time. We all, yeah. only must be lucky once. Whether the, is it, you know, I, I, what do you think the conflict could have been resolved earlier? And if so, how? Uh, well, I think that it's, it is notable that the resolution began almost immediately when she left office. She certainly wasn't the only person to blame it for that. But I don't see how any resolution could even have begun uh, while she was in office because she was so rigid about it. You may be right. I don't know. It's a counterfactual. So I, I, you may be right. I don't know. To go back to Trump, and I can 
almost hear you down the scalp the skype line rolling your eyes and i think you've made a kind of uh, uh, a good case for how thatcher personally is not even on the same plane as trump or sarah palin for that matter not in the sense the that she subject. she had Yes, and she she had 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 an absolutely master. Yes, it's really encyclopedic command of issues. Um, she was known for having three or four hours of sleep per night for months on end. She came to cabinet meetings knowing more about each individual cabinet minister's brief than that cabinet member did. But there is still a similarity. She inspired a loyalty and a coalition of supporters in some of the same way that Trump is doing. Isn't that true? I, I don't think so, because I think there was something there to which people could really attach themselves in some legitimate way. I don't think there's any way to see... Yes, Trump has a cult around him, but it is that. It's a cult. Uh, I don't see how anyone of sound mind could look at Donald Trump and say, this is someone in whom I can place great faith. It makes total sense for the American nuclear command to be under this man's thumb. I mean, this is, it's so crazy. Um, and I don't think anyone felt that Margaret Thatcher was crazy. Uh, I, I think they disagreed with her. They're, they're very different, but they appeal to a very similar constituency. In what sense? Well, in the sense that it is... Uh, white people who are uh, perhaps a higher age profile than, uh, than might be average, who feel that their world is slipping away from them. And one of the uh, famous uh, support, uh, phrases of supporters of Thatcher was that she made Britain great again. That sounds very like what Trump is saying. You know, Trump's saying that he'll make America great again is an anodyne slogan. Every politician says, we'll make, we'll make, uh, we'll, we'll be great. I'll make things great. That's not the issue. Trump's popularity is not based on the controversy over Trump isn't about his saying, let's make America great. It's about him saying things like, let's let's uh, expand the government to the point where we can deport 12 million souls from American soil. It, I mean, this is not the sort of thing Thatcher proposed. Um, it's not, but the harking back to going backwards to appeals to a people of perhaps a slightly older generation mm-hmm. and a group that was more privileged than most uh, in previous times, and that's a, isn't that a isn't that a, a commonality with their supporters, if not with them? Perhaps a little bit, but I don't think it's an interesting parallel to draw. Um, I, I think they are such different figures. I don't think I don't think Thatcher really she didn't play with the political id of Britain in a dangerous way, the way he is. Uh, the only time that she you could, you could possibly say that the Falklands War was an unnecessary conflict, but I, I actually disagree. I think that there, there, it was necessary because the principle had to be established that you can't annex territory based on geographic proximity. And this mm-hmm. was sovereign British territory. The people there wanted to be British. They had said so over and over again. So I, I, I don't see that she was, she neither campaigned on ludicrous promises, nor did she campaign on the denigration of a large ethnic minority, nor did she seem to completely misunderstand the constitutional principles or the, or the unwritten constitutional principles of the government she proposed to run. Um, I think that people had principled objection to what she wanted to do. They didn't, they, they did not agree with her about mm-hmm. what was apt to work and what was apt to be good for society. But I don't think anyone looked at her and said, this is just lunatic. Claire Berlinski, the author of uh, There Is No Alternative, Why Margaret Thatcher Matters, and several other books. I'll put links to them in the uh, notes you. for this podcast. Um, thank you very much for talking to me. <laughs> it was a pleasure. Good questions. Thank you. 
Have you read a blog post or an opinion piece that you think is really right or really wrong? Tell us why. Email podcast at challengingopinions.com and let's discuss it on the next show. That's all for the Challenging Opinions podcast published on April 28th, 2017. I have links in the show notes for Claire's books and her GoFundMe page, and I've just included a new feature on the website. I know lots of people use iTunes or other podcast software to listen, but some people don't use those, they just listen on the web page. So I've put in a little widget, you can enter your email address, and when a new podcast goes up, you automatically get a simple email with a link to that page to listen. No spam, and you can switch it off anytime, so try that out. Do you know someone who I should interview? What topics should I be covering? I'd be really interested to hear your feedback. And if you like the podcast, there's one thing that you could do that would really help other people to find it. Go on iTunes, give the podcast a rating, and write a short review. There's a link on the website directly to the iTunes page. Also, please like the show on Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow the show at ChallengingO. You can also follow Claire Berlinski at Claire Berlinski. And most importantly, subscribe to the show for free. You can use iTunes if you're an Apple person or Google Play Music on Android or RSS for any other software. And like I say, you can sign up for a free email alert just to listen on the website if you prefer that. You can find them all or get in touch with me at www.challengingopinions.com. Coming on Monday, that's May 1st, I'll have a brand new interview with the writer and podcaster Rodney Perry. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening.